This is the weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, your hosts, Drew Dawkin and Grant Collins, will have an in-depth conversation about what's happening in the markets. Hello, everybody. Today is June 8th. We are recording on a Monday. Today was a massive day in the market. I mean, the S&P erased all the losses for the year. Stocks have definitely rallied. The Dow was up 461 points or 1.70%. The S&P 500 was up 38.46 points, 1.20%. We saw volatility go up 1.29 points or 5.26%, ending the day at 2581. So this is a byproduct of the Monday jobs report, which we'll get into in a little bit. But I think we would be remiss to not talk about some of the massive conversations coming out of corporations in light of these recent protests. Um, I mean, if, if we're protesting, uh, we encourage all of you to do so and continue to do so safely. But Grant, let's, let's talk about, you know, a lot of what we've seen in terms of, you know, companies and, and, and what they're going to try and do to, uh, you know, further a egalitarian country and, and, you know, in, in ways to combat some of the systematic racism um, that's led us up to this point. Yeah, it's a great introduction, Drew. Uh, I, I think we, we've seen a lot of protests, uh, not only in America, but also uh, across the globe. So, um, you know, it, it's pretty powerful stuff to to see from overall standpoint. We, we have seen it's we've seen a lot of outpour on social media. Um, but I think one of the, the big pieces that, that I look towards is you know, what actually has changed. And uh, one thing we've seen is there's been uh, a couple funds, Goldman Sachs, one of them that set up a racial equality fund. Uh, we saw SoftBank saying that they're going to have a hundred million uh, fund to invest in companies founded by people of color. Uh, we've seen people discussing programs on linking executive pay to diversity metrics. We've seen uh, also discussions around in internship classes, having a, a minimum spots for, for young minority workers. Uh, you know, overall, I think a lot of these plans are, are great, uh, but I, I hope that they're not just dialogue and that we actually see uh, a, a lot of the systematic uh, racism and, and other aspects of the country uh, begin to change and, and really come to fruition. Roger Goodell probably had the largest mea culpa when he was talking about how the league was wrong for not listening to their players earlier. And so it seems like that was a significant shift, you know, in, in, in one of our more popular, you know, franchises for sure. So definitely something to look for. Um, you know, the, the conversation will change. I do think, we are going to see some changes. Hopefully it is not all just, just, you know, lighthearted and that, and that people are going to try and systematically look at, look at how things are done. But, um, but yeah, let's back to the, you know, jobs report. I mean, it, it was quite different than, than what we thought. May had the largest jobs increase of 2.5 million people. Now, a lot of that is coming from people who were classified as temporary layoffs due to COVID-19. And of course, you know, naturally, you're going to see a lot of those jobs coming back in leisure and hospitality. Those represented about half the jobs gained. So, so Grant, let's talk about these most recent non-farm role payrolls. I mean, it certainly shocked a lot of people. You know, there's 
a lot of people who are considering that unemployment might end at 19%. And that's certainly not what happened. So yeah, let's, let's, let's just get into some of those numbers. You bet. I, one big thing is that May was the largest one month surge in jobs in U.S. history since 1939. And that is to be expected, especially as the majority of states are now beginning to do some type of reopening. And I think the, the big number that you just stated is that leisure and hospitality workers made up almost half of it. Uh, and so I think that's, as we saw restaurants shut down and have to fire their entire staff, they're starting to bring on uh, bring on more people. Uh, I, I think it was shocking at, at how much came back. But w- one thing that I'm looking at is, is that um, this was just the laid off or furloughed workers returning to their jobs and, and a large number of them. Uh, but a- another portion of people reported that their permanently losing job was, was also higher in May. So there is uh, another flip side to that. We did see the employment rate for black and Asian workers continue to rise. So that's something to look at. Uh, overall, it, it was good to see people come back to work, but I wonder if companies just brought back the furloughed workers and now we may see unemployment be a little stagnant uh, up, in the, up in the lower teens. Uh, but those are some of my big takeaways. Yeah, I think everything is really going to come down to the context of next month. We don't know whether we're crawling or whether this is a shift that's going to continue at this level. We saw construction was kind of a large gainer. It added 464,000 jobs, which which made up for roughly half of April's losses. So, yeah, as things gradually reopen, you're going to see leisure, hospitality, and construction pick up. But... You know, I mean, there's there's definitely a lot to be said about how much of this has been permanent, and I think next month is going to be a very important data point coming into July. You're absolutely right. Is it going to continue to drop dramatically, or or will we see unemployment maybe stay flat or even continue to increase? And I think a big piece is we've seen a lot of companies stay afloat because of uh, some type of government stimulus. Uh, we've talked about it on countless on on uh, on the podcast, and so we did see Trump come out and say that they they have signed a new bill easing some guidelines. Uh, Drew, why don't you walk us through what the what Trump signed uh, last week? Sure. Some of the big takeaways were that in terms of you know the the program protection loans. The, the the share had to be 75% of of spent on payroll that has been lowered to 60%. So that gives companies a lot more flexibility in you know, what they're trying to accomplish with the rest of their loan. So they can now use the money actually over a course of six months as opposed to two months. So an increased time horizon. Uh, there's also been an extension on the date in which companies have to rehire employees and there's, there's also it appears to be some movement in terms of letting companies uh, receive, you know, loan forgiveness and deferring uh, payroll taxes. So I think it will make it more flexible overall. Uh, and I think the standards will, you know, allow companies to really look at their individual situations and act accordingly. Definitely. It's going to really come down to continuing to see some fiscal stimulus. Uh, I think, especially if we want to see the more of that, that V-shaped recovery. Uh, so it's, it's good to see that they're continuing to improve on this plan because we saw them try and come out with 
a plan as quickly as possible because we did need to have some type of funding and now it seems they're going back to the drawing board and, and refining some of the points that, that needed to be ironed out. So that it's good to see that they're continuing to work on this because it, it was the, the largest spending bill that we've seen in U.S. history. Yep. You brought up a couple weeks ago in some of our ending weekly talking points about what to see in terms of students going to colleges and how it will affect educational institutions and endowments overall. In, according to recent studies done by a survey, one class, 56% of college students say they can't afford their current tuition. Um, so you're, you're seeing, you know, radical spikes. Uh, you, you have 7% of students who are, have already been unable to unenroll or they have to find, you know, different educational opportunities or go work for full time. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's radically shifted over the last couple of months. I mean, five, 529s depleted, but you know, I think some of the numbers we'll see, it'll be important to put that in context next month, depending on what the stock market's doing, but those were definitely, definitely hacked. And, you know, I mean, roughly 40% of parents had to tap into their child's college fund in order to cover different expenses. So, so we're definitely seeing some systematic shocks when it comes to institutional education and secondary education. Yeah, I, I personally couldn't imagine graduating high school in 2020 and then try having to ship off to college in the fall. Talk about a whole different experience, not only missing your, your senior prom, but then having to maybe start your dorms with the coronavirus, your experience in the dorms with coronavirus on the on the loose. So uh, luckily we uh, <laughs> don't have to experience that. But it it, it is going to be an interesting thing to see uh, what happens. It, it seems like there may be a, a, a big push towards uh, attending community college to save costs. So maybe uh, going to community college for the first two years and then transferring in. I, I think we're going to see maybe a jump in community college. Uh, we could also uh, see a shift from uh, private to public, so a little bit cheaper there on the expense. And uh, don't forget about the gap year. Uh, so there, there, there could be kids who who take a gap year just to build a, a little bit of a cushion financially. Uh, it, it is pretty dramatic to the number that you just brought out. Is you know forty percent tapped in, uh, parents tapped into their kids college fund to help cover expenses. So I think that that shows how, how drastic the fallout from the pandemic actually has been. Uh, and, and one thing to know also is college costs have been only going up in incomes and, and it hasn't been reflective of, of the rise in income as well. Uh, so college costs have continued to, to rise. And I think a, a lot of people, parents and students are, are going to think, am I really going to pay that Fifteen, twenty thousand dollars for online classes, and I think that we we may see a, a decline in enrollees in, in the fall. Yeah, education is a gigantic outlier, and when we're talking about inflation, when we're looking at private nonprofit four years, the average tuition was roughly under forty grand. I mean, in public four years is a little bit over ten thousand dollars, but. You know, when you're looking at the average debt of graduating seniors who borrowed, I mean, in 1996, that was $12,750. Fast forward to uh, 2016, and then, you know, that was roughly $30,000. So it's it's just gone up exponentially. So I do. <laughs> Significantly. I mean, yeah. So, I mean. Yeah, this I, is, and I, 
Go for it. Yeah, and, and this isn't anything that should shock us. I mean, this, is, this has been a long time in the making. We've been talking about the rapid rise of college education for a long time. And I mean, at some point, there's going to be a cost-benefit analysis. And do I take on this debt and pursue this career? Or do I, you know, become a welder, an electrician, which, which is definitely got, you know, a reasonable salary and I don't have to, you know, incur all these expenses in time. So I do think people are going to radically be reshifting some of the push for secondary education. But. Absolutely right. And I, one thing I, I did read also is that actually it's probably more expensive for a lot of these, these institutions to make classes online because they have to build out a, everything that used to be in person. So <laughs> I, I don't think that they would raise costs, but it, it, it may still not be a, a decrease in, in cost just to go online. They may have to keep their, their tuition quite high. So um, I, think, I think we will see a, a drastic decrease in enrollees in the fall. Yeah, I mean, there's going to be no need to build new Olympic swimming pools or line everything up in copper when you're, you know, sitting in your pajamas <laughs> on your, your MacBook Pro. So, so yeah, they're definitely going to have to accommodate for that. Um, I mean, this is, we always go through the ISM numbers and, you know, as we've said, it, it's kind of obvious that they're going to drop, but it, it is important to look at, you know, the scale of manufacturing activity and how much it has dropped due to quarantine. Um, and and we, we've seen that we eased slightly off our 11-year low in, in May. So the, you know, index rose to 43.1 for last month. And in April, it was, you know, at 41.5. Uh, remember, 50 being at contraction. So, I mean, that's kind of the manufacturing outlook right now. It's 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 to be expected. Uh, I think that we're just seeing a little bit of a lag on this data. Uh, manufacturing accounts for 11% of the U.S. economy. We saw the total economy contract by 5% uh, annualized in the first quarter. So that that was the worst since uh, the 07 to 09 recession. Uh, but people are expecting the second quarter to be even worse, uh, which may be the biggest contraction in output since the Great Depression. So manufacturing is going to be one of those industries that that definitely got hurt as we saw uh, a, a lot of the uh, manufacturing processing plants and and the global supply chain get hurt by the pandemic and interesting enough this is kind of where economists were on point I mean Reuters forecast the index rising to 43.0 in May so they were pretty much right on target, whereas economists were radically off in terms of the non-farm payroll jobs. Yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting to see that there. Um, but even with some of the gloomy numbers, we, we still have seen the, the stock market really continue to, to rise. As you mentioned, we saw the S&P 500 today uh, break the, the year-to-date even point. So what was a uh, 40% loss is, is now even on the year. Uh, but we have seen, as we briefly mentioned in the in the opening here, that we, we have seen protests uh, really across uh, across the country and, and some globally. And so uh, it, it's interesting to see that we, we have continued to see an increase in the stock market, e- even with the, the outrage across the country. And so I just was wondering what your thoughts on maybe why that is, Drew, and, and are we going to continue to see the, the stock market continue to surge even with the, the most of the U.S. protesting? Well, yeah, I mean, and not to be, you know, 
cavalier about it because, you know, every instance that has been examined where the stock market rises, you know, occurred on the back of something horrible happening, whether it's, you know, assassinations or, or police brutality or impeachment. Um, you know, so, so, so we're not trying to be, you know, light on or cavalier about that, but I mean, essentially it's important to study why. Um, and, and ultimately, you know, when we're looking at some of the analysis is that people are more long-term, they view the market as more of a long-term drive than, you know, initial short, short-term and how traders look at these things. So, I mean, when you're looking at the assassination of Robert Kennedy or, you know, Occupy Wall Street or uh, even even during, you know, Clinton's assassin or impeachment, I should say, not assassination. <laughs> um, How do you yeah. really feel? <laughs> <laughs> no, his, his impeachment, um, you know, stock prices rose in all these periods. So. So, yeah, um, I just think people think of it as, you know, a temporary, temporary hold. Uh, in terms of what's going on in the country and then that, you know, things will level out functionally. And I think that this points to why we saw such a drastic slide in, in March is because people were, were pricing out the what the impact would be for the next three months. And that's why we've seen this steady rose or steady rise, even with these, these pretty uh, hairy numbers coming in across the board. Uh, just in terms of seeing the looters and having to close down establishments, that's really not going to affect the the GDP overall growth. And so I think that that's another thing is is you know, the, the protestings may not really affect corporate earnings as much as, as people think they might. Uh, really, I think what's being priced into the market is is there going to be another surge in Corona cases as we begin to open up, and more importantly. Uh, I know people who are wearing masks and being as safe as possible, but when we're talking about protesting and people marching in, in tight confinements, uh, that seems like it, it could also help surge coronavirus. Um, and so I, I think that what traders in the stock market mostly is looking to is to see uh, as the economy restarts after the pandemic, are we going to see a second surge in cases and therefore have to go back into some form of, of lockdown. So I think that that's really what the stock market is looking towards. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it, we should note that today New Zealand's reported zero active cases across the entire country. So that is, you know, a huge, huge boost in terms of morale, you know, uh, for them, of course, but also should be globally because, you know, it shows that it, it can be done uh, despite, despite you know, several months of, of surges and flattening of curve. Uh, it is possible to get to zero. And then and ultimately, what does that mean? Um, and, and you've seen, you know, with increased mobility and with things opening up, you know, oil was on track. It's had, you know, a terrific month. Uh, you saw, you know, West Texas Intermediate rallied more than 70% in May. So, it was on track for its best month ever. So yeah, let's just get into oil. Uh, we've had nothing but dismal, dismal news on terms of pricing of oil um, for the last few months. And that's obviously not from a consumer standpoint, but from a producer standpoint, but it seems that uh, producers have a little bit of wind under their sails right now. Absolutely. And it really comes back to, as we mentioned on a couple podcasts, the, the focus on uh, demand, so the drastic decrease in demand, and then also the the increase in supply. So uh, we saw that 
as you mentioned, with with states reopening and Raymond James actually was tracking shelter in place orders. And they now see about 95 percent of people who were under some type of shelter in place order is, is now in some type of reopening, which is big. Uh, China, which is one of the largest, uh, has the largest demand for, for oil. They rebounded in April to about 90 percent, just under 90 percent of of what they were, what their demand was year over year. And so I, I think we're starting to see demand really begin to, to uptick as we begin to reopen. People are going to start driving more uh, manufacturing or, or is going back to some type of normalcy. Uh, but then we also saw the the drastic uh, cuts in supply. So we had uh, on May 1st, we saw that they had that uh, the huge uh, production cut from OPEC, and then we're continuing to see Saudi Arabia and Kuwait begin to also continue to to cut production. Uh, w- one thing to be on the lookout for is is as the market begins to rebound, if that price begins to to surge enough to where the U.S. Re- begins to ramp up production again, that there's a chance that uh, other OPECs could could no longer uh, honor their cuts and and begin to increase their supply, which which therefore would continue to drive the price down. But it, it, it's good for oil to see supply go down and demand go up, and therefore we're seeing prices rise. Yeah, and we certainly have seen some long-term losers. I mean, we're still looking at prices are still about half of what they were at January's high. And then you had uh, companies, including, you know, um, out of the Bakken who have, who have declared bankruptcy. And, you know, so you're looking at pretty vital places in terms of our oil production that have certainly, certainly lost uh, North Dakota, North Dakota being a major one. Um, but yeah, let's, let's kind of dive into the Fed. Um, so, you know, you have one economist in particular, Yi Wen, who was talking about negative rates. He wrote a pretty in-depth paper for St. Louis Fed's website. That's completely gone against, you know, Jerome Powell and, and other people. So it's not so much this is what Fed policy is going to look like. It's just more more chatter. But let's let's talk about that. I mean, and of course, some of this was before the, the jobs report. But I mean, there are people looking at, you know, when we're looking at the New Deal, you had to couple it with both monetary policy, but then also massive fiscal policy and which which could include and not limit to negative rates. Yeah, well, the big point of of his key in his paper was that there really needs to be an aggressive stimulus uh, beyond what people are have deployed during the financial crisis in order to have a really strong V-shaped rebound. And and one of those would be for the Fed to take interest rates below zero. Uh, if we'll remember, the Fed had drastically dropped their rates uh, and are pretty much near zero today, and has also been purchasing a lot of bonds, focusing on uh, to, to help stabilize the, the credit markets. Uh, but my personal opinion on interest rates below zero is would be a huge mistake. Uh, I think it's really bad uh, from a symbolic standpoint. But if we look at Europe and Japan, who have had negative interest rates, uh, they haven't really proven to work. There, There's not really a lot of data that proves that they do. Um, and I think it puts a lot of stress on the banking sector as a whole. And when we're thinking about a time in recession, we want a, a stronger banking sector, not one to have added stress. So, you know, overall, I really don't believe in 
in negative interest rates. What's your take, Drew? Well, ultimately, I think it's important that the the 10-year and United States bonds in general remain competitive uh, and that we remain a competitive player in the, in the, in, in, you know, a sovereign debt market. So I I think um, going negative could undermine that for sure. Yeah, that's a great point. I I, I just don't see the the data to really uh, warrant going negative. And I think it's more symbolic. If we think about Europe and Japan, both doing it, we haven't really seen, uh, it, it pay off to them as, as both of them ha- are still in, uh, I would say, worse territory than, than the United States. Um, so we'll see if, if that happens. I I don't think it will. I, I think it needs to be more from uh, from a fiscal standpoint to continue the stimulus rather than more monetary policy. Some of the big, you know, earners, especially it's important to look at, you know, the 2007 to 2009 financial crisis have been. Uh, private equity and the private, the PE uh, industry in general. I mean, so when you look at, you know, assets under management, you know, just balloon to over, you know, 4 trillion when we're looking at PE, uh, private equity now owns about 8,000 firms, which accounts for, you know, 5% of our GDP. And, you know, they certainly did, you know, better than, than hedge funds in a lot of regard in the last uh, crisis, but they are heavily leveraged now. So do you think that is something we should be worried about? Um, I mean, when we're looking at the debt, you know, by companies acquired by PE firms, uh, at at first it was done, you know, right after the 2007 to 2009 crisis, uh, debt was done with, you know, no more than uh, 6% of gross operating profits. I mean, that was at least the majority. Now, Bain came out in 2019 and has demonstrated that, you know, roughly three-fourths of companies, you know, have been leveraged at over six times. So is that something that PE firms should be, you know, wary of or or not? I, I think it's a tricky question because uh, they are also in an opportunity where they do have uh, a, a lot of cash that can be, deployed uh, for, for new deals and taking over some, some failing companies after the pandemic. Uh, being high, highly levered, you may, you may think, uh, would make these PE firms very vulnerable, um, but we've seen that it has very little impact overall, and their business structure actually uh, is, is built around this, really. Uh, we saw that 18... Uh, Firms that defaulted in the first quarter were PE owned, according to Moody's. Uh, you know, overall, the default rate tripled, uh, and it may, may triple based on being highly levered. You know, overall, I think PE firms are are, are in a good situation and, and have really moved to the assets under management model that usually uh, was looked at for Wall Street banks, and now is really in these PE firms and. Um, you know, accounting for five percent of GDP and being that highly levered, it could could be a problem. But uh, overall, I think that considering they're sitting on a, a lot of cash overall, uh, they may come out of the pandemic even stronger. Yeah, I guess I'd add a couple more important points to to that general thing. Is that I mean, a lot of the companies who are owned by PE firms are ineligible, or they've been unwilling to participate in you know the most recent paycheck protection programs and the. Main Street lending programs, uh, but I, I, what I think is very important is that a lot of the debt now is considered covenant light. So a lot of these companies can 
you know, take on more losses and, and they can do so without worried about triggering a lot of penalties from, from their lenders um, in terms of how the debt is structured. So I do think that is different and it's a, a, a boon to, to private equity firms. And with that, um, do we, do you have anything that you're looking at grant? What we should be, I mean, we've covered a lot of ground today, but I mean, there's certainly no shortage of topics and, you know, in the midst of, uh, a lot of these civil protests and yeah, I think it's in the pandemic. Yeah, I think it's going to continue to see if the, the S and P 500 continues to, uh, to surge, uh, and, and continuing to see what, uh, executives and, and companies are, are coming out with to, uh, in terms of the, the, the protests that are continuing to happen, uh, you know, overall, it's, it's kind of focused on that mainly. Uh, I don't know. What about you, Drew? Well, I think, you know, there's been some radical reforms pushed on police, depart- police departments uh, that passed in the Senate. So, you know, uh, or sorry, the Congress, but it will be interesting to see how the Senate evaluates it. Um, one, in terms of, you know, radically addressing a lot of these inequities we have within our country. But two, it's I think it's an important gauge on how much policy paralysis there is. We've gone through a lot of cycles where I think the Senate has been, you know, a force that just can't move. But then we've also seen things like the Paycheck Protection Program and the Main Street Lending Program. And we've seen a lot of action in terms of this crisis. So I don't, I just, I think it will be really highlight where we are now in terms of our legislative body is, can we agree on this, these structured reforms for the police departments on bipartisanship? And what does that mean then for future legislation when we're talking about, um, you know, further loan forgiveness and other ways to stimulate the economy? Yeah, we'll, we're, we'll continue to see if, if we have continued stimulus and, and overall if the, if the stimulus has been what's been propping up the, the economy where we could see, uh, once the stimulus is gone, we, we, we could see uh, another surge, maybe in unemployment or, or bankruptcies. Yep. Absolutely. And on that note, everybody, thanks for chiming in. Uh, sorry we couldn't bring you a, uh, a, a podcast last week. Uh, we were between travel schedules and, and things going on. It was uh, extraordinarily difficult to do one last week. But um, if you listen, uh, thanks so much. Uh, please like and share. And we're out. Talk to you next week. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WealthFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WealthFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked in any of the content. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.